to memoirs, true stories, unfiltered. Now I can't see you guys at all. <laughs> My name is Filippo Awesome Aguilera, and the reason memoirs exist is to give our community a space to listen and learn and connect with each, with each other through the telling of our very own life experiences. So if I know I can't see you, but my wife can. So who is here for the first time? Raise your hand. I know what you guys are all thinking, you first timers, right? The first timers are thinking, how is it that I can come up on this stage and tell a story about my life? I know you're thinking that, right? So if you are thinking that, you can send an email to memoirs at, or memoirscos at gmail.com and we will send you the storyteller's application and we'll get you up here as soon as we can. Now, if you'd like, you can pull out your phones, you can like us on the storyteller. I don't know if you know this, but we also have a podcast. We just released a podcast two weeks ago of the first episode of Memoirs. So that one, yeah. So go check it out. And that's released the second Monday of every month. And if you, when you came in, I don't know if you saw Samantha in the front that she was trying to push those stickers. So get some stickers, put them on your water bottles. And the best part about those stickers is that part of the proceeds do go to CASA, which is like the foster care advocate for the kids in Colorado Springs. And one of our stories is going to make a connection to that tonight. So keep your ears open for that. Uh, those little papers that are in front of you with lines on them, those are what are called anonymous memoirs. So if you have an anonymous memoir that you can connect to school, please write it out and then back there in the corner there's a little box and in that box you put it in there and then we shuffle them around and we read them and uh, you don't have to tell us who you are if we read it though. So thank you to Eric and 3Es. Let's put our hands together for Eric for giving us this beautiful space. Please make sure to grab a bite and a drink because this is what helps support events like Memoirs and this beautiful venue that Eric lets us gracious, graciously use. So again, please order things. Please take care of your wait staff. They're excited after a year of not waiting on you to wait on you. So, all right. So I'd like to thank my team Samantha out in the front. Thank you, Samantha, if you can hear me or not. Maritza, my beautiful wife. And then Andrew, new addition to the team. He's going to be making sure it looks good on Facebook because the way I was doing it was not ideal. That was not ideal either. <laughs> all right. Mm, 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 mm. So thank you again to Colorado, to all of you in Colorado Springs, and thank you to our courageous storytellers. So tonight's storytelling, storytellers. So first we will have Kayla Green with Hard Knock Life. Was that good? All right. It's, it's your title. Rochelle Elmore will come up with Oops, School is Out. And John Condon will come up with schools out, not by choice. Now, I have my anecdote of this memoirs, and it says, we are all storytellers. We live in a network of stories. There is no stronger connection between people than the stories we tell each other. How often have we thought to our, through our
my name is Kayla Green. Can you hear me better? Yeah, I can actually see you guys, so he is such a liar. Um, so my name is Kayla Green. As he said, I am 19 years old. Um, so who is from California here? Anybody? Yeah! Woo! Okay, what about Arizona? Anybody? Yeah! Woo! Okay, I'm from both. Um, I was actually born in California and raised in Arizona. Both fun times. I actually grew up Mormon. Oh, yeah. Grew up. Yeah! <laughs> um, that should tell you everything about my story right there is I grew up Mormon. Um, so in elementary school, I was known as the teacher's pet. Let me tell you why. I was the teacher's pet because I was bullied. I was pushed down hills. I was just not cool in school, which is surprising. I'm so cool now. Um, so I was bullied in school. I was pushed around. I was bullied because I was Mormon. I wasn't cool. I wasn't the popular kid. I just wasn't good enough for them. So I hung out with my teachers. I graded their homework, which I very well could have screwed up their homework, but I'm a little bit too nice for that. Um, and so my mom, I love my mom. My mom and I are best friends. She and I have been through everything together. My mom grew up not being a member. She's actually a convert to the church is what they like to call it. She um, decided to be Mormon once she met my father. They are the ideal people that I want to be when I um, find that person that I'm in love with. He's actually right back there. Um, <laughs> so um, my mom has always raised I sucked. That was awesome. That's where we're going to start at, is I sucked. Um, dropping the mic, and I suck at volleyball. Great. Um, so junior high, I thought school was going to be great. I was new school. It's all going to be different. I was wrong again. I was pushed around, bullied. You know, this one kick in my math class, I was a straight A student. I was probably the best student in my class. I loved school. You can ask anyone I know how hard I worked my ass off in school. Like, my boyfriend will tell you how long I stay up at night just to make sure I get an A every single class that I'm in, because that is how important school is to me. But my seventh grade of high school, seventh grade of middle school, whatever, it's all the same. 
I got pushed around. This girl in my math class basically told me that I sucked. I was the worst person alive. I didn't know how to dress because I was Mormon. I couldn't wear anything above my knees. I couldn't wear anything above, like, right here on my shoulders because if a boy saw, saw my shoulders, it was all the end of the world, and they were going to, like, I shot my shoulders as end game, um, and that was not actually true. I, that's never happened. Um, but <laughs> she pushed me around. I was so depressed. She put depression in my head because all I could see was, you know, I am not good enough. I will never be good enough for anyone in society because I am Mormon. That is how I saw it was I am Mormon. I am judged, and this is what I look like, and I am no longer good enough. So my eighth grade, I decided, I said, Mom, we're going shopping. I want to change everything about me. I want to learn how to wear makeup. I want to be good enough for society. So I started wearing nice, comfy pants that were blue. I'd wear nice shirts. I'd put on a cake face of makeup just to be like every other eighth grade girl who didn't know how to put makeup on their face and thought they looked cool, but they did not. <laughs> but that girl was not in any of my classes. I never saw her again. But seventh grade, all she did was matter. All she did was matter to me because she was saying I was not good enough. So I went to freshman year of high school. All new school, woohoo, it's gonna be different. Nope, it was all wrong again. So I ended up starting dating my first boyfriend, okay? It always goes uphill when it's the first boyfriend. So he was the stake president's son, which if anyone knows in the Mormon culture, they are pretty, pretty high up in the school. So they have this really high reputation that they are gonna be the best in the business. Well, he was not. He was kind of an ass. And, you know, what he said to me was, you know, I'm going to tell your parents if you don't send me pictures of anything underneath your bra or your underwear. I'm going to tell your parents that you're suicidal. I'm going to tell your parents that you suck. If you won't have sex with me, then, you know, I am going to tell your parents that you are not worth fighting for, that you aren't good enough, and that they should just let you go, and that... They should just let you die. That was my first boyfriend, ladies and gentlemen. My first boyfriend told me to kill myself and that I was not good enough for the world and that because I was suicidal, I was worth taking advantage of. But I'm not. I am not worth taking advantage of. That is not how it wanted to be. So what did I do? I played volleyball, I moved positions, and I started giving more concussions. But, so one day he was like, okay, if you don't have sex with me, I'm telling your mom right now. And I said, go ahead, I'm done, I'm out. He said, all right. What did he do? He didn't tell my parents. A pussy he was. Um, oh, man. But, so he decided, so I could have very well pressed charges. He was overage. He made me do things I didn't consent to. But his dad came up to me and said, you know what, my son is kind of messed up in the head. Can you just forgive him and let it go? my mom raised me to be nice and kind I will just let it go I never let it go it still lives in my brain every single day that someone told me that I wasn't good enough and I should kill myself but I let it go for him because he deserved to live a life two years later he got in a car crash almost died and I said ha karma's in your face he's fine though he's fine he's alive he's married too so good for him um, <laughs> he didn't really get karma as much as I wanted him to but that's okay so I played volleyball, yeah. So sophomore year of high school, I still played volleyball, and guess what this kid in history said to me? Go kill yourself. You are not good enough. You suck. You're stupid. My teacher said, hey, that's not okay. Everybody in my class laughed. Everyone thought suicide was a fucking joke. 
Suicide's not a joke, guys. I try to kill myself every single day my freshman and sophomore year of high school. I didn't think I was good enough because everyone told me I wasn't. I wanted to die more than anything in the world at that moment in time. I did not want to be alive. Thank goodness I'm alive because I had so many great opportunities in my life now, and I am so lucky. Um, and my junior year of high school, I decided I was done with that school. I said, fuck it, I'm going to talk to my mom. And I said, we're going to move. And she said, all right, we're moving. So I moved to a new school, super Mormon, super judgy, super awesome. And my cousin was there, so I said, great, I'll make friends. I have no friends now, but I'll make friends. And, you know, my, mom, I, my cousin showed me around the school. Everyone was nice to me. I felt welcomed and loved. And then halfway through my junior year, my hip blew out, and I was done with school. I was done with volleyball. Financially, school was out for me. I was over. I was never going to play college ball ever again, and that was it. All seven scholarships down the drain, and it was gone. My dream was gone. The person I thought I was was gone. So great, moved to a new school, lost, my, lost something so important to me, and now what? What do I do now? So I decided to take on something called DECA. If you know what DECA is, DECA is a school program where basically you are given competitions, and you are put in front of judges and say, all right, this is a situation, figure it out. My situation was marketing communications, and I, I got first place. I got fifth in the state. I got first place again. I was killing it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am more than volleyball. Look at that. There's more to me than just a ball of concussions. Um, <laughs> oh, I cracked myself up. Um, <laughs> so when I lost volleyball, I decided I'm done being Mormon. I'm over it. And this friends I had at school never wanted to talk to me again. Look at that. I was no longer Mormon, so again, I was a whole different person now because my religion defined who I was. I was done. No one wanted to be my friend anymore, so I had to find a whole new group of people that were smoking crack, and I was not about that. But that's where I went because those were the people that talked to me. Those were the people who wanted to be around me, and those were the people that accepted me for who I was and what I wanted to be. And my senior year of high school, I thought it was all over. I thought it was going to be great. You know, senior year, woohoo, high school's almost over. No, that wasn't the case. My, my long-term boyfriend actually broke up with me and said, screw you, I'm done with you. I said, cool, I'm done with you too, peace out. Um, but that year I had no friends. The only friend I had was my best friend, Emma, and she's actually in the back right now, sitting back there, and my mom. Those were the people I hung out with. Yeah, I was that kid that hung out with their mom. So my mom was cool, guys. My mom's cool. <laughs> yeah, moms are cool. I'm a mom, so moms are cool now. Um, but being, like, that was who I hung out with. I didn't care about anything else. All I cared about was passing high school, going to college, and moving out the next day after high school was over. So the day high school graduated, oh my goodness, I was so relieved. Not only did I like lose all the friends that I had besides my best friend, Emma, I could finally breathe. Oh my goodness, it was like a breath of fresh air. School was out, I could breathe. But financially, I still wasn't going to be able to afford school. Like, I had no volleyball. My grades kind of sucked because I gave it up for volleyball. I said, screw this. I'm playing volleyball. I'm good enough. I'm going to go play college. I already got offers. I'm good. Karma had a different way to say that, and they took my hip away. Um, so the next day after I graduated, I moved out. The next day, I packed up my car and moved to Utah, another Mormon state. Really great job on my part. Um, <laughs> right in the middle of Provo, where all the good people are. Woo! I chose the best places to live, everybody. I know, I'm so great. Um, which, my first roommates kind of like kicked me out of the apartment because I wasn't Mormon. And then the next roommates I moved to tried to get me out of bed to go to church, and I said, don't touch me. Um, I'm not going to church. I, I have school the next morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. 
because I was that student that had class at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, so when I graduated high school, when I started going to college, you know, I thought life was going to be so much better. I was at a different place, new place, even though I was still in Mormon Central. I was at Utah Valley University, which is a place where they are really nice. They are very accepting. They love everyone no matter what. I never felt like I was at a Mormon school. I didn't go to BYU like every other Mormon out there. I went to Utah Valley University. And I thought it was all over. I thought the pain was over. And wow, was I wrong? Did it just get started? Oh my goodness. Could I tell you so much more? That would take probably an hour, but Philip told me no. So that'll save it for another time because it's really deep. I'll give you a little smidge in it. I was raped twice. Um, that's as far as I'll go. And next time I speak again, please come because that is when I'll be talking more about me being raped and all of that stuff. Um, and even though all those things happened to me, um, Two years later, after I graduated high school, moved to Utah, moved to Mormonville, I am about to graduate. I'm graduating with a bachelor's degree in communication studies with a double minor in marketing and psychology. I am, yeah, woo! <laughs> I am happily dating the absolute love of my life, woo, yeah! <laughs> and I have the cutest little four-month-old, everyone, he's back there bouncing. That's Colton, woo, hi Colton. And I accomplished all of that from having suicidal depression, like anxiety disorder, being told I wasn't good enough, being verbally abused, being pushed around, failing in classes, losing volleyball. I lost so much shit in high school. I cried every single day. I was anorexic, I didn't wanna eat for days. I popped every pill I could because I wanted to die. But now, two years later, I am going to graduate debt-free, everyone. Debt-free! Yeah! There is, I have no debt. And I thought financially school was out of the picture. But know what, you know what? They have payment plans. And I paid for school right out of the plane. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right out of the way. Going out debt-free. And now they're giving me grants because I'm a four-month-old. I should have had a kid way sooner. Um, <laughs> oh, boy, if that was only the problem with having kids. Um, but even though school was out physically, like no more freaking geometry and their pyramids and the random crap and history about the Holocaust and standard equations and all those things, no one really is going to remember like algebra. School is really never honestly out. I have learned so much every single day for the rest of my life. There are so many lessons I learn. I'm a marketer for United Water Restoration Group of Colorado Springs. Woo! Um, and I am in my dream job. I literally get to talk to people all day long. I am in my dream job. I have accomplished so much for being 19 years old. I am a mom to the cutest little baby in the entire freaking world. Oh my gosh, I could squish his cheeks. But, but I've learned so much. Being a mom is a lesson in its own. Is anyone here in a mother that knows the lesson of its own? Yeah. Anyone a father who thinks, who appreciates mom so much because they do a lot of work? Hey, Tyler in the back, that's you too. But yeah, no, in the end, like school is never out. You're always learning life lessons. No matter if you're 100 years old, you're 19, it doesn't matter. But that is my story, and thanks for coming. Put this down. Don't break it.
Okay, that's good. Okay, so the day school was out, my senior year, I sold my <laughs> history teacher <laughs> history teacher a half ounce of cocaine and never heard from him again. LOL. <laughs> Shout out to you, man. Woo! Or woman, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, let's let's here hold this so I can lower this back down to I don't know if I'm so normal, but if you want to say that. Now, we're going to have a 15, 20-minute break. Go drink, socialize, be happy, and let's give one more hand for Kayla. Presenter, but before our next presenter comes up, I would like to invite Miss Danielle McCarthy to come on stage, and she's going to tell us a little bit about Casa. Then she's going to read an anonymous memoirs, and then she's going to introduce our next speaker. Okay, now we're on. Welcome to my day. It's been that kind of a day. So I'm here actually to talk to you about CASA. And CASA is a local nonprofit. It's been around Colorado Springs for now almost 30 years. And what they do is they're court-appointed special advocates. We are specially trained volunteers who work with kids in the foster care system so that they have a voice in court. We are literally the child's voice in the courtroom. And let me tell you, that's huge because a lot of these kids are coming out of homes where they don't have adults that support them. And so to have one adult who says, I see you, I care about you, and I will help you through this part is amazing. And so I became a CASA in 2019, February 5th. It's one of my greatest accomplishments professionally. And if you want to know more about what CASA does and how to become a CASA or support CASA, um, please have a conversation. FLIP has been amazing in that all the stickers that Memoir sells, those profits are going straight to CASA. And so, thank you. And that's why he asked me to come up and speak about it, because it is something that I do. I'm now also a peer mentor, which means I have my own personal case, and I have supervised two advocate cases. Um, so that they're going through the process and I help them with their case. There's also ways to donate um, gently used items that are specific to teenagers. There's the hangar, which is a specific store for teenagers in the foster care system that they can go to to pick up clothes. Um, because sometimes when they leave their situations, their stuff doesn't come with them. And so the hangar is a great way to do that. There's also another local nonprofit that's less known but CASA does use and refers to called cases of love. So if you have gently used luggage, sports bags, those types of things, let me know. I'll tell you how to get in touch with cases for love. And what they do is they provide uh, that suitcase and what have you to kids in foster care because sometimes when they leave, their stuff is put in a trash bag. And I don't know any other way to tell a child that you don't mean anything to anybody than to have your stuff put in a trash bag. By the way, El Paso County is the number one child abuse county in the state. If you don't think you can't change a child's life and impact, trust me, I'm on my second case 
and the impact is unbelievable. So please purchase that. If you have uh, Amazon Smile, another great way to support them. Purchase a sticker. Get out and find out what you can do to support CASA because truly, and I think this next speaker for sure, because she had a CASA, and she was a CASA, did so and had CASA support her through her system. How am I introducing her? Oh, we got to do that first. Oh. This, is, this is why we don't put Danielle in charge of stuff some days. Okay. Oh, history teacher. Okay. I was a high school history teacher. God love you. Um, and one of my students sold, sold me some cocaine on their last day in class. I never heard from him again. It's the same one. It's not. That's, That's hilarious. Awesome. Okay. So you both are in this room. I call bullshit, but whatever. <laughs> Alrighty, so the speaker now, where's her intro? This is called Improv Night. Forgot to tell you about that Improv Memoirs. Okay. Rochelle Elmore, I have yet to have an amazing conversation with her, but I know her story is absolutely amazing. And hers is Hard Knock, Hard Knock, Oops, School is Out. That's the one you pointed to was schools out. The, 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 okay. Rochelle, you are amazing. Oops, high school, school is out. Girlfriend, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Yes, I do want to um, encourage you to, to um, buy some stickers. I, I was part of a CASA. Um, they did help me through uh, my high school years. Um, I did actually have to go to court and testify and things like that, and I did illegally emancipate myself when I was 17 years old. So um, I really enjoyed um, when I got to see the CASA people. A lot of times when you work with social workers uh, for a lot of years, social workers have a, what's called like an empathy burnout. So they've kind of like seen it all, heard it all. And But when you talk to the CASA people as a child, it's like create such a safe place for you because they really, really are like, dedicated to listening to you and hearing you. So so I'll just uh, start at the beginning because that's the only way that I know how to do it. So my story was when I actually uh, started a whole domino effect when I was nine years old. I was in the fourth grade and I decided to do something that I didn't know was going to like blow up everything. Um, and so I was shocked when I saw the outcome, and that was to tell the truth about something that was happening. And um, I really didn't see what was going to happen. So I was nine years old, and I grew up in a very violent home. And I thought that was normal. I thought that everybody got beat up by their family members, um, and that you know you were told that you were stupid and worthless. But this weekend in particular was like particularly violent, like a lot more violent than it usually was. Um, and so I sensed that, like I knew there was something major happening for the violence to be this bad. And my older sister at the time, who was 16, she came to me and uh, she had some pages that were, that were ripped out of a notebook. She said that, that my dad had written these pages and that she gave me specific instructions that if she were to go missing and was gone, <clears throat> most likely killed, that 
she was going to put these pages in her locker, and she instructed me that if um, the police came or if anyone was asking questions about her being missing, that I was to tell them that the evidence was in her locker. So as a nine-year-old, I was entrusted with this. I was curious to know what was on the papers, so I read a little bit. I had no idea what a lot of it meant, um, but I saw that my dad had been writing things about my older sister, which was his stepdaughter, and there was the word lust, which as a nine-year-old, I knew that that was probably something not good. So I couldn't really conceptualize what that was. But um, So I went to school that day. I, um, I had to sit sideways in my chair. I couldn't sit straight on my butt because um, the bruises and the welts were so sore. So I was kind of like sitting sideways and um, our teacher would always have us write in our own little journal about our weekend. So, cause we were, you know, practicing writing and things like that in fourth grade. So I was really nervous because I wrote down the acts that had happened that weekend. And I wrote down about the pages that had been ripped out of my dad's notebook. And I told my teacher, I was really just expecting that maybe she would come to me, give me a hug. Um, and a little bit of encouragement. And so I, we were watching a movie and she was reading through all the notebooks. I was waiting for her to get to my hot pink notebook. And when I saw that she was reading it, I became really nervous. And I got really nervous uh, when she frantically clutched the notebook to her chest and ran out of the room. And so I was like, oh shit, <laughs> what, have I, what have I done? <laughs> And I was actually really upset with her because I was like, where is she taking my notebook and who is she going to show it to? And I don't want anyone else to see this except for her. Um, so then she came back to the office and she removed me from class, um, which she left the class without like having another teacher come in, which was pretty crazy too. So I'm thinking she never leaves the class without like another person, another adult coming in. So we went down to the office, um, talked to the principal. My teacher was crying profusely, and I was really pissed at her. And the more pissed at her I became, the more she cried, because I felt like she had betrayed my trust, because I really entrusted her with this information. Um, so then the social workers came. Uh, they brought my younger sister to the, to the um, principal's office and um, asked us a few questions. Um, we had to disrobe, and they had to take pictures of us. Um, which was hard, you know, at nine years old. My younger sister was eight years old. Um, and then the sheriff came. We lived in a small town, so it wasn't like the police came. It was just like the county sheriff <laughs> came. So um, we were really hesitant to talk to him and tell him what was really happening um, because we really wanted our older sister there. We weren't going to talk unless, like, she gave us the okay. Uh, but they finally, after a few hours, convinced us to talk and then we really started spilling the beans. <laughs> so um, it was kind of shocking to see that they were shocked, you know, because I was confused the whole time. I was like, so is like this lifestyle like not normal, you know? Like, so um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big eye opener at, um, at age nine. And then, so that's the day that I realized um, that school was out. Um, we left school. We had like two months left in the school year. We went to um, a foster home for the next couple of months. 
And so I was really excited to get back to school the next year because I had been like five months, you know, like I had the whole summer plus those two months off. Um, the summer was really hard. Um, my dad was out on bail. Um, he wasn't allowed to be around us unless it was like supervised visitations. My biggest confidant in the world was my older sister, the 16-year-old, and she was gone now because she stayed in foster care permanently after that. Um, we stayed with our, my grandparents, and my mom spent six days a week with my dad, and she only came back and she spent one day with us. So it was an incredibly hard and lonely summer. Uh, my grandparents, um, they did the best they could, but they weren't really emotionally available and ready to deal with what we had to deal with. And we were away from all of our friends. So I was super excited. The first day of fifth grade, I would just ran up to my friends, and I hadn't seen them in months. And all of them turned their back on us, my, me and my younger sister, and said, we're not talking to you. We're not allowed to talk to you. And so it was really confusing because I'm like, why aren't you allowed to talk to me, you know? And um, school became, you know, it used to be my refuge away from feeling worthless, and then now I came to school and felt worthless again. Um, and then plus I didn't have any of the support. I didn't have my mom coming home but one day a week. Didn't have my grandparents really emotionally available, and then my older sister was gone too. So my sister and I kind of just forged ahead, the two of us. And I really kind of took on the mother role to my younger sister, uh, who was eight and I was nine. So the next two years went by, and it just continued. Um, we were ostracized, um, being in a small town, because we were different now. And we had social workers that came to see us every week. Um, and we had like supervised visitations um, with my dad and things like that. So it just made things difficult. And it really just went from bad to worse. I mean, you don't have anybody there for you. And then you feel worthless. And then you're a child. So you don't really know how to deal with it. So um, let's see here. So then the next step was we moved to Colorado Springs, which was fantastic for us because my sister and I made a pact with each other when we moved to Colorado Springs uh, when, I, when I started seventh grade. And we're like, okay, like, don't tell them anything at school like that we're weird or that we're different or that we have like crappy stuff going on in our lives. Like, just pretend, <laughs> put a smile on your face and pretend like everything's okay. Um, but then we started talking to other kids and they all had like crappy lives too. And like, it wasn't a big deal. So. <laughs> That was actually a great thing because we were able to like open up and talk to people and share things about our lives that were going on and um, then it became no big deal. So um, like we didn't feel ostracized. We actually kind of found our clan, we found our group that we fit in and they had things going on in their lives too. So it worked out really well. Now over these next few years, we were taken, between my younger sister and I, we were taken a total of nine times from my parents. So my parents just like getting like one chance after the other, and they just kept blowing it. So finally, over those six years, um, then I was 15, almost 16, then we got uh, taken away for good, and we became a ward of the state of Colorado. And um, we stayed in foster care for good, and that's when, you know, the CASA really came into our lives. So 
before that, we were just like meeting with social workers every time we were taking and meeting with social workers every time we went back. But that's when I actually did go to court and I had a chance to testify um, with, with um, my parents and they had their, their parental rights taken away. And that's where CASA came in, you know, especially going to the court appointments and things like that. And then CASA was right there with me when I, at 17, went before a judge and legally emancipated at 17. Um, so the, um, the moral of the story is that, you know, the events that happen to you in your lives, some people think that it's all the events that happen to you that causes the trauma. But in actuality, the trauma comes when you're recovering from those events and you don't have someone there to help you. And that's what causes the long-lasting trauma. So when you know of somebody that has struggled before in the past and you think, oh, that was like a long time ago, they still have lots of healing to do and it takes years to work things out. And you actually work on things really till for the rest of your life. It's a continual state of healing. And just when, you, just like an onion peel, like just when you've like gone through one layer after a la one layer and you think, okay, I've gotten to a good place now, like I feel pretty healed. It's interesting how one trigger can set you completely back and now you've got a whole nother layer of things that need to be healed. And so when you go through um, events like this, you, um, you, you put a story in your head like, I caused this, especially when you go through things at like a young age, like nine years old and under. I didn't know like what was happening. I didn't know that <clears throat> that incredibly violent weekend, I didn't find out until 11 years later because I didn't see my two older sisters for 11 years. So from nine until 20. And then you get to connect the dots back. So my sister told me that the reason why she ripped the pages from my dad's notebook was because he had been raping her for the last year and been sexually abusing her for years before that. I had no idea. So when all of that violence that was perpetrated towards me, I blamed myself for that. But I realized that recently before that, he had been threatening her and saying that I'm not gonna let you hang out with your boyfriend, which hanging out with her boyfriend was her only chance to get freedom and to have a place where she could be herself. And he made her break up with her boyfriend. And my sister was so desperate that she said, I don't have anything to live for now. And he had nothing to hold over her head. So my sister that weekend had actually cut him off and she stood up to him and told him no. And all of that violence that was perpetrated against my younger sister and I was to hurt her and was to make her feel bad. But the story I told myself, it was all about me. And so that's what the healing is about. It's about going back and learning the truth and the motivations behind people. And usually their motivations have absolutely nothing to do with you. But my feelings of worthlessness, you know, I blamed all on myself. And you carry that nine-year-old girl with you for the rest of your life until you understand the truth. And now I know that weekend had nothing to do with me. Now there was incredible consequences that I paid for telling the truth. I blew up my whole entire family. 
I was blamed by my dad's side of the family for telling, for speaking the truth. And even until some people on that side of the family passed away, they were still mad at me. They knew that it was the truth, but they said that I should have kept it in the family and not gotten law enforcement involved. Like a nine-year-old knows these things, right? And I blew up all my relationships with my friends. So in my mind, as a nine, that nine-year-old girl, I vowed to never speak the truth again. Speaking the truth only blows up your life. And in my mind, it wasn't worth it. But now looking back, I'm proud of that nine-year-old little girl. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was strong. That was powerful. So please buy a sticker so we can give some money to Casa. <laughs> Um, before you leave, hold on, hold on, it's, it's Rochelle, you got to read an anonymous memoir. Hopefully it's not about cocaine. <laughs> okay. When I was four, my dad was the high school band director. I pulled the fire alarm in the gym during the basketball game. School's out in the parking lot. <laughs> Awesome, thank you. All right, so we've got another 15, 20 minute break and then we will come back with John Condon to close out our memoirs night on Schools Out. So go have some fun, we'll be back in a few. So I gotta tell you, Rochelle was awesome, wasn't she? This is awesome, man. I got to follow up on that story, man. That's this. That's gonna be a good one. All right. So I wanted to say uh, it is pretty bright here. I can, can't see too many people yet. But what? Gee, it is. Could you dim it just a little bit for me? You don't have dimming? There's no dimming. All right. So she's here. I'm gonna look at her. So basically, what I want to do is I'm gonna tell you my story about when I was uh, 15 years old. I played competitive ice hockey on an all-star travel league, and we traveled from Buffalo, New York, all the way down to. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So we went, we went everywhere. Anybody here from New York? Yeah, we got some New Yorkers, cool. Any ice hockey players in the room? Anybody play hockey? No hockey players, all right. Well, you guys, you're gonna learn a lot about hockey right now. So let me give you, let me give you the setting. So it was back in 1985, the New York Islanders played, they won four Stanley Cups in a row. It was the drive for five in 1985 versus Wayne Gretzky and the Edmonton Oilers. And you guys all know about the great Gretzky, right? Well, he took over after that, and they won after that. But the Islanders won four straight Stanley Cups in a row. So I grew up in Long Island, New York. And I got to tell you, ice hockey was like the favorite sport. Everybody, you know, was playing ice hockey. So I wanted to be really good. So I went, I traveled all over the place to play. And um, we were playing in the, we had a really good team. So basically, they, they had us play in the state games. 
And if you win the states, you can go to the nationals. If you win the nationals, you can try out for Olympic teams. It goes on like that. So we were, we were really uh, doing well, and we're in the state games. And I was one of the centers of my team. I was also one of the captains. And a lot of times, they try to knock the captains down, or they want to try to take them out of the game, or they do something to the captains. So I was playing, and I basically, my left winger had the puck. It went between his skates. So I put my head down for two seconds. I pulled the puck out of his skates, passed over my other winger, my right winger, and that defenseman, which should have been covering him, came straight across and crushed, checked me right in the neck with a hockey stick. So he got me right in the neck with a hockey stick. My guy went in and scored. We're up 3-2 in the state games. Everyone's cheering and yelling, and I'm laying there on the ice. I literally was laying there, and I could not move. I couldn't feel the coolness of the ice on my back. I couldn't feel anything. And I came from a tough area in New York where, you know, we, we got to hurt. We'd get back up, and my coaches were trying to get me up, and I couldn't move. I felt like a magnet was just holding me on the ice, and I was just stunned because I got hit right in the neck. And um, the paramedics came running out, and they shined a light in my eye, and they said, kid, you're in the twilight zone. You're between conscious and unconscious. And they were like, you know, I, I couldn't, couldn't do anything. So my coaches eventually came out, the two of them, the offensive, defensive coach, and they put their hands under my armpits, and they literally dragged, I was getting dragged off the ice. My feet weren't even working, and they sat me down in this chair. So they put me in this chair, and they loosened up all my equipment and my legs, and you know, they loosened up all my pads and my skates, and after 10 minutes, they thought the feeling would come back, and 10 minutes went, went by, and they said, hey, you ready to go back out and play on your first line again? They want to get me back out there on the team. And I said, uh, let me see if I can tie up my skates. <laughs> so I went to tie my skates up, and my hands were stuck like this, and I had pins and needles shooting in my arms, pain shooting down my arms, and the feeling came back in my legs and body, but my arms and hands wouldn't work. They couldn't work. And I tried to grab my hockey stick, and I just I couldn't grab it. I had no strength. So after 10 minutes, I said, I knew something wasn't right. And I said to the paramedics, I said, I think there's something wrong with my arms and hands because I can't use them, I can't move them. I have no strength, I can't even tie my skates up. So they said, oops, they put a cervical collar on me and they put me in the ambulance and they rushed me to the hospital. So I go to the hospital, yeah, they, they didn't see that. They didn't see, they didn't see the, they didn't see how the injury happened because everybody was running around, it was crazy. And it happens really quickly on the ice and the ice, it just happens fast. So. They take me to the ambulance, they take me to the hospital, and uh, they bring me there, and the medical doctors and neurologists, they had orthopedic it was orthopedic doctors and neurologists, they wound up doing a CAT scan or CT scan, 99 pictures of my head and neck, and they said, uh, they came out with this conclusion, well, nothing's broken, nothing's severed, so we'll check you in like a month, keep wearing the cervical collar, here's some sterile drugs and anti-inflammatories, but we would advise you never play ice hockey again, and that was like my life. We advise you never play again, and we'll check you next month. I was like, what, are you kidding me? You're going to check me in a month? I was like devastated. I was like, this is ridiculous. They didn't do anything besides do exams and tests, and they did nothing to help me. So I go home, and I'm taking the, you know, what they said, and uh, I go to, you know, I'm hungry after the games and all, so I go to eat, but I realize I couldn't pick up a fork to eat. I couldn't even grab a fork with my fingers, and my mom had to feed me again. So here I am, 15, my mom's feeding me, I got a cervical collar on my neck, and I'm like, this is horrible, I'm like, what am I, what am I gonna do? I'm like, I can't believe it, I'm somebody who used to, you know, go play tons of sports, I played soccer, I wrestled, I played golf, I played ice hockey, I played all these things that I couldn't do anything anymore. So, I was really frustrated, and uh, a week went by, and I tried to go back to school, I wanted to go back to school, 
but the teachers wouldn't let me come back, and the principal wouldn't let me because I was too much a liability because if something happened, I fell. I wouldn't be able to put my hands out. If I, something happened, they just didn't want me in school. So school was out for me, not by my choice. And, um, and, they give you, and they give you an example. After a few weeks of being home, you know, I was going stir crazy, and I convinced the teachers to let me back in school. So they let me go sit in the back of class, and they gave me, uh, I, gave t I gave myself, I brought in tennis balls and silly putty, and I was squeezing all these different things to try to get my strength back in my hands. I had those grip, you know, little grip devices where I was squeezing them. And I just, uh, you know, nothing was working. I just wasn't, I wasn't getting anywhere. And I'm like, am I going to be like this the rest of my life? And I was getting really frustrated, depressed, upset. And my, um, I went to watch, after school one day, my older brother played baseball. And I'm like, oh, let me go watch one of his games and go out there. And I went, and this is when it really hit me. I went out to watch his games, and I was watching everyone playing. I played baseball, too. And um, one of the assistant coaches said, hey, kid, you want to, you know, you want to keep, they knew who I was. They said, you want to keep stats for us? You know, you keep the runs, who runs, hits, strikes, and all that. You want to keep all the stats? I'm like, sure, I'll keep them, not thinking that I couldn't write. And I went and grabbed the clipboard with the, with the uh, pencil, and I couldn't, I couldn't actually I didn't have the motor skills to, to grab the pencil and write. And then I was just in tears. I was in tears, and I gave him the clipboard back, and I'm like, that's it, I'm done. So that, that week, I went home from school one night, and my younger brother, was a, uh, he was playing high-level tennis in the junior pro tour. He went to Europe, he played in junior pro tour. And he said, you know, there's this sports chiropractor that every time at the Hamlet Cup in Long Island, Hamlet Cup's like a big, it's almost like the US Open, and he said there's every, any time a tennis player gets injured, they go see the sports chiropractor. So maybe because you had a sports injury, you should go see the sports chiropractor. And it was really interesting because my parents thought it was a good idea, and here's a 13-year-old telling a 15-year-old what to do, you know? And my parents are like, well, that's a good idea because none of the medical doctors helped you. All they did was would put fear in me, and they just said, take these drugs and medications, and nothing was helping. So my, my parents were like, let's go see the sports chiropractor. And it was really interesting because this guy, his name was Dr. Larry Johnson. His wife was a professional figure skater, and he worked on all the professional figure skates and the ice hockey players for some of the pro teams. And so he worked on a lot of uh, really high-level people, so I thought it was a great idea. So we go see this Dr. Larry Johnson, and he took some x-rays of my neck, he did an exam, he did all these range of motions. I had to take my, I sold my collar on, I'd take my collar off, and he's doing all these tests on me. And he, t and he came up with the conclusion, he said, listen, your neck is supposed to be this way, like a C-curve, so if you look at me from a side, you should have a nice C-curve in your neck, right? So it goes like this. And my neck was reversed, just like in a whiplash accident, when you get hit in whiplash, your head goes, it goes like this, your head actually goes, it goes forwards, backwards, and then forwards again. And so what happens is your neck ends up like this, like with a reverse curve. So I had a reverse curve in my neck. He said, those, those nerves that go down to your arms and hands and fingers, they're being compressed by this. You have spinal misalignments in your neck, which we call verbal subluxations. You have subluxations in your neck pinching those nerves so the messages from your brain can't get down to your arms and hands. So he said, what we need to do is we need to remove the interference and allow your body to heal on its own. And that was the first time I heard that concept. I'm like, you're not going to give me any drugs. You're not going to give me any surgery. You're just going to, we're going to let my body heal. And he's like, yes, we're going to give your body a chance to heal. So here this chiropractor, he gave me hope. He took away the fear from the medical doctor's reports. He gave me hope. And I was like, okay, but I was, one thing was wrong with me. I was, I was a little nervous because I was almost paralyzed by a hockey stick. So I was a little nervous to get my neck adjusted, right? So I took a leap of faith. 
So I took a leap of faith. I jumped in. I let him adjust my neck. And after, after that first adjustment, I was like this. Oh, my goodness, I can move my neck again. I never wore that, that cervical collar again. I couldn't stand it. I threw that away, didn't wear it again. By the end of the first week, getting adjusted three times, I started moving my fingers again and hands. And by the second week, I was there feeding myself, doing things again. Third week, getting better. The strength was coming back. My arms and hands were getting stronger. The pain was going away. I had, I had like shooting pains in my arms and hands and fingers, too. It was like pins and needles, but it was like stabbing. Like someone was taking little needles and just sticking them in my arms. And uh, that was going away. So everything started to heal. And after six weeks, to my parents' dismay, I wound up playing ice hockey again. So in six weeks, I was back playing ice hockey after getting adjusted. Nobody wanted me to play, but here, you know, the doctor said, don't play. And here he was like, you know, get me back on track. And I'm like, I'm playing again. So I wound up going back, playing hockey again. And it was just an amazing experience, so much so, you know, that I became a chiropractor. And uh, 22 years ago, I've been practicing about 22 years, and I can tell you what I've learned from that experience, and I've worked with hundreds of thousands of people. I had a big practice in San Diego before we moved here. We've been here open two months now. But I can tell you that in life, sometimes somebody up there said to me, you know, I had two uncles who were medical doctors, and my uncles, well, I come from an Italian family, and they're very pushy, and they all wanted me to go to medical school because I had good grades and I wanted to be a doctor but I did not want to give people drugs and surgery after that experience. I didn't want to give them medications or drugs. So someone up there said to me, bam, I got hit with a stick and they knocked me into chiropractic. But sometimes the worst things that happened to you, I was 15, I thought that was the worst thing that happened to me. That was probably the best thing that happened to me because what it did was it changed my course of life and I took on a whole new life into an alternative natural healthcare, which is what I really thrived on. So I wound up going to school for studying nutrition, nutritional biochemistry. I then went on to chiropractic school, became a chiropractor. I then went and got my certified uh, as a CCSP, certified chiropractic sports practitioner degree, like what Dr. Larry Johnson was. I wanted to be like Dr. Larry helped me. And, um, and I learned that you have this innate intelligence inside your body, and this inborn intelligence. We're all born with it. You have the greatest pharmacy, the greatest drugstores inside your body. We don't need to go for medications, lotions, potions, and pills to heal. The healing comes from inside of you. The greatest healers inside of you. So one of my goal with patients always, I always tell people, I want to give you the fullest expression of life by removing the interference. If you can, that master system of yours is your brain and spinal cord. And so if I can get that brain to communicate with your spinal cord 100% and remove all the interference, your body can heal from everything. I've seen kids with severe asthma heal. I've had patients with cancer, with severe allergies, digestive issues, ulcerative colitis, not just headaches, neck pain, and back pain. We see that every day. But I mean, tons of digestive issues. And it's your body. Your body heals on its own. Just remove the interference and let it do its job. So we say find it, fix it, leave it alone. And that's one of the greatest things. So what I want you guys to know is that your body can heal if given the opportunity. I learned a long time ago from my experience, so I know that the body can heal. And you just have to trust it, have faith, and believe. And remember to look for those signs, because sometimes the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing that happens to you. Thank you so much, Scott. That, that's why she's my wife, you see?
one says, on the last day of school in seventh grade, I had just turned 12 and my boyfriend gave me my first kiss. I was so depressed, and then it says number two, I was so depressed in college with no support, I quit one day and moved in with a boyfriend out of state. A few months later, my mom found me and brought me to Colorado. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a half a novel right there. <laughs> All right, so thank you guys for coming to Memoirs. Again, you can find us on the social medias, Memoirs COS. Um, next month, we've got a surprise. We've got a surprise for next month. Who's ready to hear a surprise? So next month, we will have a guest host, and that guest host will be Patrick Murakami. Yeah, so that should be fun. We also have two of our speakers for next month here today, and one of them is Tanisha Martin. Where's Tanisha? And the other one is Scott Brandt. So I'm still looking for one more, so if you're interested on getting on this stage, memoirs, it's coming, memoirscos at gmail.com. Can we not shoot our load so fast? <laughs> Can we build it up? <laughs> She just wants it now. <laughs> so the theme for next month will be, it's about the journey. So if, any, if that hits you, reach out to me and uh, let's get you on this stage. So aside from that, let's party for the rest of the night. Speakers, well, one of them is already gone because she's got a little baby. But whoever's left, come up here. We're going to take some pictures. And everybody, time and attention is the greatest gift we can give to each other. So thank you very much. Have a good evening.